0: The Independent Republic of Mike Gray on Talk Radio.
1: Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We have not been uh, with you since uh, a lot of the action of yesterday. Uh, We watched many of the MPs in Parliament standing up and speaking, many of them very, very well, and many of them with great passion about why we have let down the people of Afghanistan, why Joe Biden should be blamed for doing so and leading the charge on that. And we've also seen an awful lot of footage this morning of the Taliban uh, checking people's identifications, trying to make it difficult for them to leave the the airport at Kabul... And all manner of stories now coming out about what's going on and what the fallout of this ridiculous situation is going to be. Uh, Last night we heard that the uh, outgoing president of the uh, Afghan government, uh, who fled the country as soon as the Taliban moved in um, over the weekend, has now turned up in the United Arab Emirates, supposedly uh, with a sack full of money. No, not just a sack full of money; several sackfuls of money, and in fact a plane load of money, uh, which some say is worth as much as 170 million pounds. So we'll be checking that out as well. We'll be talking about all of that much, much more. Besides, let's kick things off straight away uh, with Dr. Rakiba, San independent expert in British public attitudes, because he wrote a fascinating piece about why um, those people in this country who think that the nation-building idea uh, of parts uh, abroad uh, is a good thing uh, should really take s- uh, some lessons from what's just happened and why they should never do it again. Rakiba, very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. Um, as, as, as I have been, I no doubt you've been glued to some of the coverage that's coming mm. in from uh, Afghanistan and some of the terrible things that we're not seeing but we sort of know are happening behind the scenes. Uh, tell us a little bit about your uh, piece that you've written, uh, which is in the Critic magazine. So I
2: think in terms of um, what I've written about when it comes to discussions on Afghanistan, I do feel, Mike, that there's almost been a romanticization of post uh, 2001 afghanistan i feel that when we're looking at these foreign nation building projects when we're looking at the project of creating a new afghanistan or rather modernizing afghanistan it's been a fundamental failure mm. and you can see that from um survey data that has taken that, that, that when it comes to polling which is taking place in afghanistan the pew research center back in 2013, which was well into the war in Afghanistan, 12 years into the war. When you look at Afghan public attitudes, you see that there's a booming support for Sharia inspired governance. Um, th- there's also mainstream support for deeply patriarchal social arrangements, uh, brutal punishments for um, adultery and apostasy, apostasy, the act of leaving Islam. So you can see there that this this attempt to at imposing liberal democratic values or rather uh, implementing this foreign nation building project in Afghanistan through the lens of liberal democracy, it has been a fundamental failure. It hasn't worked well at all. And also during that time, very serious problems have been allowed to fester in countries such as the United States and the UK. I, I, I um, co-authored a report last year which showed that one of the most fundamental uh, one of the most fundamental weaknesses within the united states and the uk in terms of how their democratic society works is the degree to which people have such a fundamental lack of trust in the democratic system and you see both countries have had issues in terms of how they have managed the covid-19 pandemic both countries also established international hotspots for family breakdown. They're really struggling with this explosion of racial grievance politics. In Britain, we, Islamist extremism remains the prevailing terror threat on our shores. And that's largely because of domestic failings, uh, state-sponsored multiculturalism, Fail thinking on integration, and a lax border security system. So I really think that people who have an insatiable appetite for foreign building in different countries, which have vastly um, d- different cultural and religious contexts, um, they should maybe focus their attentions more
1: at home. Yeah, I think that's right. And looking at your uh, your piece and the figures that you quote, I mean, really speaking, if it's 85% of Muslims in Afghanistan who favour stoning as a punishment for unfaithful spouses, you know, what are we even doing trying to introduce Western values into a country where most of the people believe that? Bonkers. Absolutely you bonkers. Know, let them get on I
2: with out. it. I think there, when you're talking about those foreign nation building exercises, um, it's misplaced ideological radicalism. Yeah, that That, that is what it is. And I think that this sort of democracy promotion project in a country say for example if there's a clear appetite for liberal democratic change in that country then there can be a discussion about how western countries can help those movements okay absolutely fine support Mm. those movements but afghanistan was it was a very different case and what you see with afghanistan is that it remains a resolutely islamist society which has where there is comprehensive support for those patriarchal um social relations and those kind of punishments for things such as um adultery and apostasy so what what, i can only say that those people who's who promoted that kind of um nation building um, exercise, they need to uh, they, they need to undertake a serious period of introspection.
1: Yes. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because over the last few days, we've heard all sorts of different versions of events. You know, we've heard for mm. example, Biden saying, we can't have the war go on any longer. And his critics saying, well, hang on a minute, uh, there wasn't a war going on. Uh, it was simply mm. an occupation, if you like, by US forces and many of whom had already been pulled out by Donald Trump anyway. Um, he mm. says last night in his interview with ABC um, that basically it would have been chaotic no matter what Uh, He had done and no matter Mm -hmm. how he had done it. I don't agree with that. I think he could have done it in a much better way, because I think the problem for us, Rakeem, and I totally uh, buy your um, uh, your Mm. theory and thesis about this. And I think you're absolutely right to say that we shouldn't really be interfering in the running of their countries. The problem for us now, though, uh, is the knock on effects of all of these refugees Mm. leaving. The ones, I presume, the 15 percent who don't want to stone uh, their you know, partners mm. to death, uh, who don't want to have people hanged for adultery uh, and who don't want to actually have Sharia law. They want to have a decent life. So so those people are the ones who are going to end up uh, in, in our country.
2: Well, I, I think that I'd, I'd make the point that when it comes to uh, the withdrawal itself, uh, President Biden is wrong. It didn't have to be as reckless and incompetent as it was. And it has been. I, I, I think that there are many people who agree with the decision of withdrawing troops from Afghanistan. What what they clearly have a problem is, is the way it was done. The execution was very poor. And now we're seeing the impact of that. We're seeing the effects of that, rather. I, I think in terms of our refugee policy, I, I think that we need to adopt a hard headed approach. If we are going to have a refugee, if we're going to proceed with this refugee policy, um, settlement scheme you mm. could say um in relation to afghanistan we have to learn from mistakes we've made in the past mike when yes. it comes to asylum and refugee policy because if that's not complemented with a, a robust social integration regime um extensive mental health uh, comprehensive mental health support for people who have come from those kind of traumatic um, experiences abroad then you're going to have a very serious problem and I, and, and i do feel that British people um, who have reservations over over how refugee policy is implemented, they're right to have those reservations. Because the reality of the matter is when you look at foreign national Islamist extremism in the UK, a notable portion of those individuals had a refugee and asylum background, and I think
1: we should bear that in mind. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, the people of this country should be listened to when they are asked the question, but they're very rarely Mm. asked the question, you know, are you happy with, say, I don't know, three or four hundred Afghan refugees coming into your local council, being housed, being given universal benefit, which is what will happen to them, uh, and Mm. and having their families join them, and, and having their children go to the schools that your children go to. Now, it's not a question of racism, it's not a question of uh, of of anger, it's a question of space. It's a question of whether we can actually handle this many people. And we have got David Davis MP saying, mm. you know, five thousand, ten thousand, twenty thousand, not enough. We should have fifty thousand. Well, I, I I
2: think that I think the Afghanistan situation exposes the 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 deep problems that we have with having a, a disproportionate amount of privileged um, out of touch. Mm. Uh, politicians in our in our in in our political establishment because the 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 main issue in relation to Afghanistan is that they don't truly understand well they fail to understand the prevailing views in Afghan society and perhaps because they're in their privileged social bubbles that they they're they're deeply complacent over the kind of problems we have at home Mm. and I think the combination of the two quite frankly will, will be infuriating for the average British voter, and when it comes to issues of immigration um, and asylum policy, the British the British people were ignored for decades.
1: Yes, I, I think that's that's the reality. And And they constantly get told, oh, do you know what? Uh, You know, you're really being a bit racist here because lots of other countries take many, many more migrants than we do. I was talking to a guy yesterday. He said, well, the thing is, Pakistan has taken about two million. I went, well, Pakistan, one, is a very big country, and two, uh, is also right next door to Afghanistan. So that makes perfect sense to me. You know, if America is only offering to take 10,000, what the hell are we doing Hmm. taking 30,000? I I, I think one of the main
2: issues uh, that we've had in Britain... Is that we've had immigration, we've had an immigration and asylum system which doesn't have social cohesion at the heart of it, and I, I think that's a serious problem because th- there's been this kind of misplaced idealism um, which advances the view that if you um, if you provide a safe haven um, from people from different cultural and religious contexts, they will automatically adopt liberal democratic values and be grateful. Mm. That's not necessarily the case. And I, I think that when it comes to looking at these kind of issues, we have to be hard headed about the prospects or rather the, the the potential for large numbers of people who originate from uh, sharply contrasting social, cultural and religious environments, their their ability to integrate into Britain's liberal democratic society. That's not a matter of that's not a matter of racism. That's a matter of culture. That, 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 that that's what that's what those are debates surrounding culture and i think all too often people have raised those views and i'd make the point mike that british muslims overall the, the, their level of concern over islamist extremism is not that different to the level of concern in the general mainstream i'd really make that point mm. As, that these this is an amount of racism this is a matter about of you know t- to what extent is social integration a realistic outcome to what extent can we absorb certain numbers and maintain a a level of social cohesion that the general population is happy with. These are very important debates. And if people want to use racism to brush them under the carpet, I won't personally allow it.
1: No, I think you're absolutely right to say that. Dr. Akiba San, stay with us. We're going to take a little break here. We're going to talk about this a lot more. I want to talk to you about Joe Biden, what his interview was like last night over in the United States of America. He still uh, doesn't seem to want to take any sort of responsibility for what he has created, uh, which, let's face it, is going to get worse and worse and worse by the day. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham
3: on Talk Radio.
1: Back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We're talking to Dr. Akiba San, who's written a piece in the Critic magazine called Sticking Plaster. We could never have achieved uh, the laudable aims of a new Afghanistan uh, is what he's saying let's find out uh, what went on last night in America ABC uh, the television network did an interview with President Joe Biden on the withdrawal here's what he had to say
3: the idea that the Taliban would take over was premised on the notion that the uh, that somehow the 300,000 troops we had trained and equipped was going to just collapse they were going to give up I don't think anybody anticipated that no mistakes No, I I, I don't think it could have been handled in a way that we're going to go back in hindsight and look. But the idea that somehow there's a way to have gotten out without chaos ensuing, I don't know how that happens.
1: Joe Biden saying he doesn't know how it could have been been, uh, organised any other way. It seems incredible uh, that even he cannot actually bring himself to admit that he made a mistake, that he got it wrong. Some people think that Trump started the ball rolling uh, and that he should never have believed the Taliban but as we've known and as we've talked about many times before uh, as the British government uh, ended up doing deals with the IRA in order to get the Good Friday Agreement sorted out, uh, there is sometimes a need to talk to terrorists presumably in order to stop the bloodshed uh rakib um it seems incredible doesn't it that biden uh has got um, i mean he's not got away with it but i mean he's never if donald trump was in charge can you imagine what the hoo-ha would have been over all this oh, I, president biden
2: i i think that what he said there that this was just inevitable the chaotic uh scenes that we're now seeing in afghanistan is absolute nonsense um the withdrawal was reckless it was incompetent uh, as i said um earlier mike that the decision to withdraw western military presence from afghanistan that 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 is very much that that would command mainstream support I, i'd imagine but the way it's been conducted president biden has to take responsibility for that and he's clearly not willing to do so
1: no, exactly right. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, I mean, when Donald Trump did the deal with the Taliban, when he did sign the deal, he said, look, if this goes horribly wrong and you guys don't keep your side of the bargain, we will come back. But Biden doesn't seem to be interested in that. Um, and I suppose my question to you is, is that what would have to happen for, for Britain and the rest of the West and possibly the United States as well to go back in, you know, at what level would the Taliban's brutality have to get to before mm-hmm. the West took an interest? Or is that it now? We're just never going back. Well, Mike I'm not entirely, I'm not entirely sure to be honest, but one thing I
2: would I would say that in terms of how the Taliban advance unfolded and how provincial, uh, provincial capitals felt like dominoes, mm. um, you know th- th- this happened in in a, in a very short period of time. I think that when we're looking at the Afghan army, I think that and when I talk about this romanticization of post 2001 Afghanistan it ignores the fact that Af- uh, Afghanistan state systems, were generally dysfunctional and they were riddled by administrative corruption. I'll give you one example. Um, in the Afghan army, we had some uh, inscrupulous commanders who were, fabricate, who were fabricating the existence of soldiers that didn't exist, so-called ghost soldiers, yes. to claim those additional salaries.
1: Mm. And well, that's
2: quite remarkable. That
1: is quite remarkable. What we also know uh, is that the president mm-hmm. of Afghanistan, the former president of Afghanistan, I should say, uh, Rafa Ghani, uh, he's turned mm-hmm. up in the United Arab Emirates as of last night remarkable. Uh, with apparently so much money they couldn't get it all off the tarmac. I mean, literally, I, I mean, we, we're, we're thinking he's got about 170 million quid with him in cash. Where's that come mm-hmm. from? I mean, Mark, well, what we're talking about, there is industrial-scale corruption yeah. at the very top.
2: And then uh, another problem there with the Afghan army was that the, uh, the soldiers who are naturally going to be demotivated by that level of corruption within the military, they were often sent to areas to de- to defend, they were often sent to defend areas that they had little family and tribal connections and attachments mm. to. And if you understand the kind of deeply clan-like tribalistic nature of, a tribal nature of Afghan society, that is a spectacular blunder in itself. And perhaps that, that, that when you put all of these factors together, along with the fact that Afghanistan's state infrastructure, after twenty years of western presence, was was deeply um deeply corrupt and dysfunctional. What kind of state were they
1: being expected to defend? Exactly right. And no wonder in that case, I suppose. That, but but I mean, on, on the two points you've made this morning, one, mm. an awful lot of people actually go along with some of the Taliban's belief systems anyway, and maybe some mm. of them are in the Afghan army. And when they see the Afghan Possibly. army literally sort of being so corrupt that it's folding in one city after another, then if you're an individual soldier or you're even an individual officer, uh, what's your incentive for fighting?
2: Well, I, and, and I, th- I, th- I think that that's a entirely valid point. I think that ultimately what were they defending, Um, the areas they were being asked to defend, to what extent did they have an emotional attachment to those areas?
1: And as Tom Tugendhat said yesterday in Parliament, a very powerful speech that he made, you know, Mm. how dare Joe Biden, who never fought for his country in his life. In fact, he quite possibly evaded uh, the the draft when the Vietnam War was on. um, You know, how dare he criticise fighting men who have fought for their country?
2: And I think that's the point. I think we need to avoid simplistic narratives and really take time to understand the various dynamics at play when looking at how this Taliban um, advance took place mm. and how they managed to um, reassert their control and authority within a sh- such a short period of time. And th- th- that is ultimately at the heart of what I'm, what I'm calling for, mm. that there's ultimately a, a, a forensic in- examination into the failures of the new Afghanistan project.
1: Yeah. And just finally, Rakeeb, what do you see um, as the end game um, and the end result, really, if, if we do indeed take 5,000 Afghan refugees straight away and then a further 10 or possibly another further 15,000 over the course of the next few years?
2: I think if we, pro- if we were to proceed with those plans, I think, firstly, women and children should be prioritised under any resettlement scheme. I, I'd, I'd really make that point. Mm. Um, I, and of course, people who uh, assisted uh, the British Army with its operations there in Afghanistan—they should be prioritised under such a scheme as well. Yeah. Um, but, but again, I really have to make this point: we need to learn from the experiences of um, the past. That when we've had uh, when we've had refugee policies in relation to Muslim majority countries, um, which which are conflict-ridden territories. We have to be aware of the social risks that come with that mm. and if we refuse to learn from the, the past then we're going to see very very negative what, what, what we are going to see we're going to see failed social integration you're going to see the almost the the, the further balkanization of british society where you have the development of um, counter societies And that is going to be a very serious that that will be a very serious problem. And that risk needs to be taken very seriously when we're when we're considering these kind of matters surrounding immigration. Of course.
1: Dr. Rakiba San, thank you very much indeed. Independent expert in British public attitudes, giving his view there of the nation building plans uh, of the West and why they failed and why they should never really be attempted uh, ever again. Because if you think about all the places that have been uh, under the yoke, if you like, uh, of British and American kind of uh, military um, occupation, if you like. You know, we've had Iraq, uh, we've had Afghanistan, we've had uh, Libya, all these countries which have failed. Uh, They're all failed states, basically, and now uh, we are reaping the whirlwind of that.
2: The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
1: Right now, though, let's talk about China and the influence that China will now have in Afghanistan. I mean, it would be ridiculous to think that uh, China's influence in the world could become even stronger and even bigger. Uh, But in that part of the world, apparently that is what is about to happen. Let's talk to Sam Armstrong, Communications Director at the Henry Jackson Society. Sam, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. I mean, it is kind of hard to imagine the Chinese becoming even more powerful in the world. But, but with the Afghanistan um, sort of insurgents, if you like, the Taliban taking over, it would appear that, that China are in sort of pole position. We're told the the, the Chinese embassy is still open in Kabul, one of the few, alongside the Russians. And of course, they got far more money than Russia. Um, and they're almost, almost certain, I would suppose, to do to Afghanistan what they've done in Africa.
4: Yeah, look, it... Afghanistan matters for the China-US-Western world relationship for two reasons. The first is that they will control the country. Mm. We've already seen that they've been getting very into Pakistan through this uh, program called the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which is an incredibly uh, big development project, all entirely paid for by the Chinese government. They really value it as access Um, straight to the Middle East, where they can pump in oil without having to ship it via sea, which they worry is um, could be disturbed by uh, Western countries. Uh, And and then the second reason it really matters is because at the moment, the West is going around to countries and saying, look, don't go in with China, don't deal with them. If there's ever trouble with them, we'll come and back you up. Most importantly, of course, in Taiwan, which China has long uh, had its eyes on, those assurances now mean far less than they did at the beginning of the week Mm. and you can see that because the global times themselves put out that this is china's propaganda global magazine it said it said people of taiwan recognize that if we invade and in fact they said when we invade uh, your defenses will crumble in hours and the u.s will not come to your defense so the west is looking pretty small right now Mm. if you're a a smaller country that's within the gaze of either China or Russia.
1: Yes, that's right. I was hearing this morning, Sam, that the IMF is withholding some money which was currently uh, supposedly on its way to Afghanistan, something like £400 million, um, I understand, and possibly some other money that would have come from the UN uh, is being withheld. But in a way, that kind of presents a new opportunity for the Taliban to just walk across the street into the Chinese embassy, embassy and say, you know, how do you fancy giving us half a million or half a billion dollars?
4: Yeah, there's this this interesting uh, trend with Islamists that they are both uh, deeply ideological and nevertheless uh, thoroughly pragmatic, Mm. and they'll deal with anyone. I mean, my favorite example is Imran Khan, who's the president of Pakistan, who's been lecturing the West for many, many months about the scourge of Islamophobia, but he's also all in bed with China. You ask him, well, how about the million-plus Uyghurs that they've mm. got in concentration camps over there? He says, oh, well, we speak to them in private. Don't raise that. No, that's a conspiracy theory. You, yeah. don't, you don't want to know about that, hear about that, anything. The Taliban would be exactly the same. If you're paying them, uh, well, he who pays the piper calls the tune.
1: Yes, exactly right. And Imran Khan, funnily enough, has been quite supportive, hasn't he, of the Taliban moves on recent days, and he's, he's, he's kind of, he's moved full square away from what he used to be, which was a sort of bit of a playboy down the king road uh with uh, various uh, members of the goldsmith family and he's now gone sort of full um uh, islamic uh, fundamentalist and he's now talking about um uh, how the west is uh, and western culture is like slavery
4: yeah that's right he's become like the, the most uh, islamist uh, world leader on the stage. Uh, there's a real questions about what Pakistani intelligence, what role they had in supporting uh, the Taliban, actually. And and we have a, a big question to ask there, that if Pakistan had a role in funding a terrorist organisation that is uh, that has killed British soldiers, then why, oh, why, oh, why, oh, why are we sending them hundreds of millions of pounds a year in aid, our single biggest aid destination, Pakistan? uh no questions asked to a country with a nuclear program that's funding terrorists that are killing british uh soldiers out there in afghanistan we've got real questions to ask it's uh he's just one of the many people that touched the goldsmith family over the years that seem to have now ended up in uh, in, in in curious positions of uh ide- causing ideological trouble huh. uh not least one of them being the Prime Minister's new wife.
1: No, quite. Um, and one of the funny things as well about um, uh, the way that the world has kind of moved on its axis is uh, Ashraf Ghani last night turning up in the UAE, speaking of foreign aid, uh, with what a pound apparently amounts to some £170 million, uh, largely in cash, uh, brought on, uh, literally onto the tarmac off a plane. They couldn't get it into the helicopter. There was so much of it.
4: Yeah, and he's got this nephew, right, who uh, just as Carball is flying, he go- what does he do? He goes onto his Instagram page and he pose- posts a picture with a filter of him walking onto his own private jet saying, Fly, trying my best to fly from one crisis to the the other in style. Right. The, the Ghani family, there was rampant corruption uh, throughout Afghanistan. And for reasons of political convenience, we didn't deal with it. Yes. Now, there's there's a hundred different ways that we've got to take responsibility for what happened in uh, Afghanistan. But one of those is allowing a corrupt leader from one or other groups of the tribes to rip off the rest of the country, to not pay the soldiers who then surprise, surprise weren't the best motivated when it came to fighting. Mm. Uh, and we were responsible for dealing with it and we didn't.
1: Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and, and what role do you think the UAE is now going to take in this, if any?
4: Well, it's a really interesting question. So Everybody sometimes looks at the Middle East and thinks it's all one uh, amorphous blob, it isn't. There's a lot of different tensions going on. And the UAE, most important thing to remember is it's it Saudi Arabia, uh, Oman, have all got a big problem with Qatar. Qatar has uh, been very close with the Muslim Brotherhood, and I'm afraid he's been very close with supporting and harbouring the Taliban for a very long time. So Qatar has won out by getting its people into Afghanistan. So I think what you'll see is the other countries in the, in the Gulf region, the Middle East, beginning to push back against them, push back as far as they can against the Taliban, who they view as this dangerous new uh, streak of more radical uh, Islamist ideology that that is actually very threatening to their own capacity to run what they want to do, which is run successful Western-style economies.
1: And interestingly enough, I was also hearing uh, today that there is some form of mineral that exists underneath the ground in Afghanistan, which is of interest to the Chinese, something that they're very much using at the moment, and they're digging up from all over the world wherever they can get it. I'm not sure, I can't remember what it it is, but that kind of puts things into a different perspective as well, because you always assumed looking at Afghanistan, there wasn't much there, that anybody could plunder but apparently there is
4: yeah well it's, it's one of these really interesting ironies that um afghanistan has almost no strategic use to us yet we've spent 20 years of blood and treasure fighting for it and the reason is it's because we were fighting for values and not our interests and it, but it has enormous strategic interest to both china and russia which is why the soviet union spent so long trying to take it mm. which is why china is now going to pour in loads of money. As I say, it's right on the oil route uh, that China would really like. Uh, There's rare earth minerals that China can use. uh, I'm afraid to manufacture the the high tech batteries that are going into the cars that we are building that are electric cars so that the planet doesn't warm up while we're taking the steps to cut the climate while China keeps building 300 new coal power, fired power stations. And then we question, why it is that uh, we're the ones looking the losers at the minute.
1: Unbelievable. You couldn't make it up, could you, Sam? Thank you very much indeed. Very informative, very interesting. Sam Armstrong, the Communications Director of the Henry Jackson Society, with all uh, the information that you will need as to why uh, everybody seems so interested in Afghanistan. Because when you look at it, you think... Well, it's a sort of mountain kingdom. It's a place where nothing much grows. It doesn't look particularly um, uh, habitable in parts. You know, the cities are large, but, you know, relatively, um, um, you know, non-eventful, really. And suddenly here we are with... Moves about oil, uh, interesting tales about electric cars and why you need the minerals in the ground in Afghanistan to build the batteries for those electric cars. So, the climate change lobby are going to be involved. Meanwhile, there's men driving around uh, with guns on the back of pickup trucks looking for people to shoot. Amazing. This is Britain and that is Afghanistan 2021. The world has become a very interesting place.
3: Selling a little? Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. shopify.com slash work.
1: Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Before we do anything else, let's have a listen uh, to Jacinda Ardern, who is, of course, the uh, Prime Minister of New Zealand, announcing the latest lockdown.
5: But first, I want to assure New Zealand that we have planned for this eventuality. And that we will now be putting in place that plan to contain and stamp out COVID-19 once again. Going hard and early has worked for us before. While we know that Delta is a more dangerous enemy to combat, the same actions that overcame the virus last year can be
0: applied to beat it again.
1: Well... It can be applied to beat it again, but uh, is it really worth shutting everything down because you've got one case of COVID, which apparently developed into about half a dozen or seven cases of COVID? It really does seem remarkable, isn't it? I mean, Jacinda Ardern was this woman who was painted as one of the greatest leaders of the Western world uh, of all time. I don't think that's going to be the case anymore, is it? Let's talk to Helen Dale. Hi, Helen.
5: Good morning, Mark.
1: How are you? Very well, indeed. Very well, indeed. I mean, I fail to see why anybody thinks that Jacinda Ardern is any kind of leader, never mind a good one, given her a complete and utter panic. And we're going to be talking about panic, uh, the panic pandemic later on in in the show um, with John Tierney. Because, I mean, you can't say that she's doing anything other than panic, can you? This is the, and you heard it in the little clip that you just
5: played, it's the zero COVID fantasy. Yeah. And I out in the extreme with this Delta or Indian variant, which is very transmissible. That you can do the zero COVID fantasy. Right. I just—it is a fantasy. Yes, it you is. You might have been able to do it with the earlier varieties of the, the of uh, of coronavirus, where they didn't transmit as easily, where uh, you could uh, have lockdowns and then vaccinate people and then move out of the of the lockdown and rely on your vaccines to prevent infection with uh, or to prevent serious illness or hospitalization mm. with with the delta variant which is what the uk has done but this idea that you can somehow just manage you know move your entire population like people on a chessboard in order to achieve this zero covid fantasy mm. i just find completely extraordinary and really quite alarming because it's worth pointing out that australia has quite a strong authoritarian streak uh, hist- that goes back over some probably 150, 200 years, mm. uh, that goes back to it being a penal colony, which is why I like using the line from Professor Katie Barnett at Melbourne University at the law school there. She says, always remember Australians are the descendants not only of convicts, but also of their jailers.
1: <laughs> yes, indeed. I've heard you say New that New Zealand,
5: before. Yeah, New Zealand is not, not a single convict was ever sent to new zealand it was entirely settled by free settlers it's like south australia in australia which is why i found the treatment of the returning olympians that were forced to do double quarantine in south australia really quite alarming because south australia was the free state of australia and had no convicts sent there it's one of the reasons why it got positive sea shanties there's a huge difference between botany bay which is the very sad one for for new south wales and bound for south australia which is the very happy uplifting sea shanty for yeah. south australia uh, so the history it's also why south australians have a different accent just look up alexander downer on youtube and listen to him it, it, the, the history is different yeah and My so producer just see, waved at
1: me i'm not quite sure why but i'm assuming because he talks like that as well but here's the yes. thing right i mean new zealand to me has always been a kind of uh, slightly small-minded presbyterian type place which has been um settled to a large extent by a lot of small-minded presbyterian people from scotland and i say that yes. as a scot so don't uh, accuse me of racism please
5: well yes it's the australia has a, it has been leavened by the irish influence and the sort of the bonhomie and the happiness and the storytelling culture and the the smart remarks, the witty repartee Mm. that people associate with the Irish. Australia has a lot of that. It's why the country is associated with having good humour and it's also why even during the the worst of the authoritarianism in Australia, people have been very funny about it, Mm. sending it up. That cultural tradition is much weaker in New Zealand and it's also the Indigenous population in New Zealand is is very different from the Indigenous population in Australia, the Maori. Uh, They were converted, as were people throughout the Pacific Islands, overwhelmingly to to Methodism or Scots-Presbyterianism. So they are conservative protestants or have those cultural values that you associate with conservative scottish protestantism Mm. in in new zealand it is it's it's basically two ethnicities it's the pakeha who are the scots descent white new zealanders by Mm. and large and the Maori who are in the indigenous population and then a significant percentage of people who are a mixture of the two yeah but the country is overwhelmingly conservative scottish protestant yes and that, but that and has come think, out and in do you it. think
1: that as it is kind of at the end of the line if you like in terms of the travel business you know because you don't really go through new zealand to go anywhere you kind of get to new zealand because that's where you're heading and one Fire of our australia typically yeah.
5: because of the distance yes, yes.
1: But one of the reasons why um, they were able, I suppose, to, to continue and to contain Covid to a large extent, because not very many people go through it. I mean, one of the reasons Dubai, for example, is still uh, considered to be um, a a red zone to to, to a large extent, even though that's been slightly melted down, is because it's a huge hub for people who come from all over the world and they go through Dubai in the same way that Heathrow in London is a huge hub for people who come from all over the world. You know, so there's bound to be more cases, there's bound to be more incidences, there's bound to be more countries, you know, sort of represented, if you like, whereas New Zealand is relatively isolated, isn't it?
5: That's part of it. It is helped by being an island or two islands, as you say. And I will just make a little constitutional point here. New Zealand is a unitary state like the UK. Mm. There is no and there is no devolution at all between the North and South Island. So you don't even have something obtaining like the situation in Scotland or Northern Ireland or Wales, the other home nations. It is a a very traditional unitary state, which means when you lock down the North Island, you lock down the South Island as well. Uh, so it's like the UK used to be.
1: Even though it makes it just, no sense.
5: Even though it makes no
1: sense.
5: Right. L- like It's like the UK used to be when it, back in the days when there was a minister for Northern Ireland and a Scotland office and no devolution at all. Well, there still and,
1: is. And I mean, the trouble, trouble for, for those of us who pay our taxes here is that there's still all of that, uh, but they've just added the other bit on. So don't worry, there's still well. a Northern Ireland minister, there's still a Scottish office, but now there's an <laughs> entirely separate tier of government which has been invented by yes. Tony Blair so that's
5: what why that has happened in in new zealand but behind it all uh, and so the isolation did help being an island helped being at the end of the line helped but you have to acknowledge that one thing australia and new zealand have done for many decades very effectively on the back of their immigration and asylum seeker policies that both countries have is they're very very good at just welding the borders shut Mm. if they have to now that ability to weld the borders shut worked with the the alpha beta gamma varieties of of COVID, which were less transmissible Mm. it appears not to work and we now have the evidence of new south wales which is not just getting cases now there are deaths also that once it gets loose in a population it will start to. It just spreads like wildfire. Yeah. Wildfire. But
1: it's doing about, that here, right? With with much fewer consequences on the grounds that many more people here are vaccinated. Whereas are vaccinated, in Australia yes. and I think New Zealand is similar. Uh, there's hardly any vaccinations.
5: Well, Australia is at, the, at the, is 30 percent fully fully vaccinated and 50% half vaccinated New Zealand. I don't know how many are fully vaccinated. I don't know how many are half vaccinated, but I understand it's 20% fully vaccinated. The Australian vaccine rollout has become much quicker recently. basically because they've been scared into into doing it and one of the things that has happened is some is quite a lot of vaccine hesitancy over AstraZeneca mm. particularly in New South Wales has fallen away and it's particularly fallen away in hotspot areas because people have seen their relatives die that is that has been the thing but the the problem behind all of this is you've still got this rhetoric particularly from health officials even though it's obviously impossible you had i I was i I get a daily update from the australian because i write for them that's my home newspaper and uh they had something like 600 odd new cases in new south wales today right you know, and 70-odd of them were active in the community. You know, this is the thing. You're not going to stop it. Give it up. No. You. All you can do now is vaccinate the hell out of everyone and hope that you, and just, it will finish up going through the population. The real concern, and I might have to explain just a little bit of Australian history here, until now, Australia had kept coronavirus completely out of the remote Aboriginal communities. And you might think, well, why why is that important? Why is that different? Now, as the Australian Aboriginal population, the indigenous people of Australia, historically, and one of the worst aspects of, of colonization when white man first went to Australia, is they had no natural immunity, not only to things like smallpox, like Native Americans, dead in the US they had no natural immunity to colds and flu Mm. so influenza and coronavirus so there has always been this terrible fear that if it got into the remote aboriginal communities it could wipe them out Mm. now this is an entire Forty thousand year old civilization that is probably best known overseas for all for for producing very fine athletes like you know the 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 the, particularly the rugby league and rugby union footballers Mm. like uh, mark ella um and also cricketers like jason gillespie so producing outstanding athletes but the other thing that it produces is that beautiful artwork Mm. that that is very popular with all the dots and lines. And is
1: it still the case then that they are, um, as a a group, generally speaking, lacking in immunity then?
5: Yes, they're vulnerable to Mm. respiratory illness. So, and the thing is, I saw a report in The Australian a few days ago that there was a case in Wilcannia which is one of the remote communities. So there is a, there is a terrible fear in mm. Australia that the Delta variant will, will run wild in um, in the remote communities. And I saw an interview with one of the elders and he was doing the, the thing that the, 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 the Aboriginal elders do to try to encourage good behaviour amongst everybody else in the community. He was getting vaccinated and there were photographs mm. and footage of it everywhere all around the community to try to encourage other people to do to do the same thing because they really do need the vaccine. The, yes. Aboriginal people. But the
1: question I suppose now is for people both in New Zealand and Australia is, is, you know, how much of this will they continue to put up with? Because at the end of the day, you know, here in Western Europe, certainly people are travelling. You know, we're hearing that from the hmm. EU countries, there's absolutely open door policy from in one country to another. Slightly different hmm. if you're going from the UK, but we've got a full football program back on. I mean, we heard that yes. Australia had its full football program back on and they were showing uh, stadiums full of people some months ago. Um, But they seem to have gone backwards, you know, and there must be many. I haven't seen the figures. So maybe you can tell me there must be many businesses that are going under. There must be many, um, um, you know, uh, parts of the economy, which is simply inoperable. Well, parts of the, the the federal government's having to put its hand in
5: its pocket, which is really the taxpayer's pocket, mm. of course. And, yes, you're exactly right. There are large parts of the economy that are inoperable, particularly in New South Wales, which is the largest state uh, with the largest economy, although not the largest export economy, the largest export are from Queensland and Western Australia, which yeah. are both still open, because they produce the great bulk of agricultural produce and also uh, resources. Mm. So, all of the um, coal and gas and so on and so forth tend to, uh, and gold and diamonds tend to come from West Australia and Queensland. Yeah. Um, so the economy, this is the, 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 because Australia has absolute advantage in a couple of areas, energy and and agriculture, it's not just comparative advantage. You can get this very, very um uh, This very persuasive sheen to it, you can look at it and go, well, their economy is fine, their GDP is fine, they've got plenty of money, they can afford all of this stuff, but they don't realise what it's actually doing to the people in the country with the lockdowns. And there's the thing that has emerged, and I mentioned this a little bit a a couple of weeks ago in the Independent Republic, uh, the thing that has emerged is quite nasty ethnic disharmony. Mm um so they first in in new south wales because the, the it was being spread by lebanese muslims and so there was some really nasty bigotry floating around but the worst incident is there was a from a, a conservative orthodox uh, or conservative is the wrong word actually an orthodox engagement party held mm. in breach of lockdown rules in melbourne yeah and we had the the, the spectacle of a hospital employee at. A major hospital in melbourne which shall remain nameless uh deciding to tell the world that oh god i'm so sick of lockdowns we should have stuck all those jews in the gas chamber quote unquote no. yes she's been sacked yes. and you might think oh that's a free speech issue well, but no you a, cannot uh, have medical personnel uh, treating people differently on the basis of their race it's like people well, unfortunately, try to make like, like
1: many, you know, but like many things that have happened during this pandemic, lots of people have become much nastier than they were before. Some yes. of them have have kind of. Um, Have said things that they should never have said. They seem to have Mm -hmm. thought that somehow, because you're in some kind of a medical scenario, which they think is an emergency, you can say whatever you like. You can insult as many people as you want. Yes, uh, we have. uh, There has been a lot of that. There's been loads of that, which is terribly disappointing at the very least, and it's awful for so many people. But stay with us, Helen, because we're going to come back and talk a little bit more um, about the uh, free speech business, but also uh, about the left cancelling the left, as ever. Uh, We're talking to Helen Dale. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk. Radio. I'm talking to Helen Dale and Helen. I've just got uh, a piece of um, information about vaccination rates. Only about 23% of New Zealand's uh, population of 5 million have been fully vaccinated, which is apparently the lowest rate among the 38 members uh, of the OECD. So so that might account for. Uh, it is low. Yes, I knew it was yeah, low. That's, that's not good at all. Let's talk about Kate Clancy, though, because uh, this is a woman who has been effectively kind of attacked by her own, if you like. Um, yes. And the left, as we often know, uh, do enjoy sort of eating their own. She seems to have got into a bit of a um, a spat with Philip Pullman, amongst others. Um, and he is another one who's come out and with some pretty horrible stuff over the course of lockdown. Um, you know, a man who's made a fortune out of his dark materials, uh, the, the TV show, as well as the books that he sold in this country. Apparently hates Britain, thinks we should never have voted for Brexit and continually you know, runs it down constantly uh, on his Twitter account.
5: Well, I wrote a piece and I've just tweeted it and I've put it underneath the advertisement tweet that you've retweeted for CapEx about mm. the Kate Clunchy situation. But I wanted to make, not just to put her story in context and explain what was going on there, I wanted to make a little historical point about this treatment, this attempt, treatment of people based on how they speak, putting words in people's mouths, mm. because it's not a new phenomenon. But what a lot of people don't realize is that it's a ph- phenomenon that existed historically. And I have used the example of the French court under Louis XIV, Louis the Fourteenth, and the pal at the court at Versailles, uh, to explain it. What what it what basically happened historically is that posh people set rules about how you were to speak to them. Mm. That's probably the long and the short of it and i describe in the piece and i won't go into the detail here the how ridiculous they became at the court of versailles yeah. and just generally in french society and they did contribute they were one of the things that fed into the reasons for the french revolution mm. now what modern people don't realize is when you see someone who is really quite posh and this is where you have to use a class analysis in Britain and n- not anything to do with, with race. If you see someone who is, to, to use the modern phrase, per- person of color, yeah. um, who's a professor at a university demanding that the college quarter call them by their title, doctor or professor or that kind of thing, you are getting, you you have a person of the same social class as the coaches in France, telling ordinary French people how to speak to mm. them.
1: Yeah. Well, funny enough, we're going to have a conversation about this in the next hour with uh, with John Tierney, because he's uh, named them the laptop class, which are the people who kind of, you know, got their uh, got their knickers in a twist about COVID and decided it'd be a great idea to lock everybody down because they could all work from home and they'd be great for them. And it's not a problem for them.
5: And they can sit around having a go at London criticising Londoners in tiny flats for going to the park. Yes, Yes, exactly. I remember this. It was not, it was, it was all the bits of of the British class system not for export, is is the way I would like to put it. Um, So when you get people who are really quite exalted and quite a long way up the tree and have plenty of money and very good lives and nice big gardens and all of that kind of thing, telling the college Porter or telling the BA cabin crew how they're to be addressed, it's a demand for cat doffing Hmm. now this is something that we had really really uh, ugly debates about in the united kingdom in the 19th century and eventually it is what fed into things like the people's budget it fed into reforms to the house of lords and their inability uh, and preventing them from blocking money bills and so on and so forth and the reason for it was because no We have made a decision as a country. We recognise we have a class system. And this used to be the work of the Labour Party. It seems to have disappeared now. And we're not going to go around and tell other people how to speak based on what social class they're in. Mm. Now, what is being directed at Kate Clanchy, the writer, from her own side, is very much a species of the same thing. I am going to... It is people setting themselves up and saying, I am going to tell you, Kate Clanchy, a professional writer how you are to write about me, how you are to portray me and how you are to speak. And I'm sorry, as far as I'm concerned, there is only one reasonable response to that kind of behaviour because it is so snobby and class-based and it involves the conjunction, you know, uh, it involves telling the other person to develop an interest in sex and travel. Yes. Indeed, I'm thinking of two words. Yes, I know. Is off.
1: This is the thing, and I mean it's not that different really from Lord Digby Jones having a pop at Alex Scott for not speaking uh, in the manner that he thinks she should speak if she's going to be on uh, broadcasting networks. But we're out of time, unfortunately, Helen. So we're going to have to pick it up another time. Helen Dale, a writer, lawyer, and political commentator. There is a terrible snobbery out there uh, in this country. It always has been, and it's not always necessarily now from uh, the posh classes down to the working classes. It's more to do with the sort of the middle classes who think they're cleverer than everybody else. There's an awful lot of this going on, particularly in London, uh, where people work in quite well-paid jobs and they can work from home and they don't have to go out and meet anybody and quite often they don't go out to meet anybody. They don't really like anybody else. They actually only like their own company and they have become uh, what can only be described as the laptop class. And we're going to talk to John Tierney, uh, an American writer, about that coming up in the next hour because he's written a great piece about the panic pandemic and why it was that almost every country in the world panicked It immediately locked everything down in the same way that Jacinda Ardern is currently doing in New Zealand, even though they didn't have to. But they did because they could and then they continued doing it and they are still doing it in some parts of the world. So we'll be exploring all of that.
2: The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
1: Let's talk now uh, to Ben Habib, CEO of First Property Group, co-founder of Unlocked, former Brexit Party MEP, of course, a man who knows a, a thing or two about what's going on in Afghanistan, and he's going to be telling us what he makes of the situation currently. Ben, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. You've obviously got um, some experience as a fr- reasonably frequent visitor to Pakistan uh, as to what's been going on, I suppose, in that part of the world. Did, did the events of the last weekend surprise you at all?
0: Not at all. Actually, I've been saying since the beginning of July that there's about to be an imminent takeover of Afghanistan, of Afghanistan by the Taliban. Um, I had the unfortunate pleasure of watching Sir General Nick Carter on on um, on the Ma show mm. at the beginning of July. He was extremely hot under the collar, trying to defend the British impending B- B- British withdrawal, claiming that actually the Taliban would, take no more than the regions in Afghanistan and that the main urban areas, which is where the bulk of the population is, would be secure. Mm. But that was about the daftest bit of thinking I've ever heard expressed um, as far as the military campaign goes. If the regions of a country are lost, the cities become nothing other than besieged entities. Mm. And it was predictable right at the beginning of July that the Taliban were going to prevail and take Afghanistan over very, very quickly. I saw in the, in, in the comments yesterday, some debate over whether our military intelligence was wrong. It had nothing to do with our military intelligence. It, it was that we were not being intelligent. Mm. It was obvious what was going to happen and we shouldn't have done it. And I bet General Sir Nick Carlton knew that actually when he was speaking about the regions being the only parts of Afghanistan that would be taken
1: over. Mm. Well, the funny thing is, as well, as, as recently as July the 8th, uh, President Joe Biden was denying uh, at a press conference that the Taliban would take over the country at all. He said it was extremely unlikely. He also said that there were no um, parallels to be drawn between Kabul and Saigon because you would never see an American helicopter removing anybody from the rooftop of the embassy. Both of those things were entirely incorrect.
0: Absolutely incorrect. And you know, we've left, there was no need for this immediate, hurried exit, leaving behind $2 billion worth of American military equipment that has now fallen into the hands of mm. the Taliban. This could have been managed a hell of a lot better. And there's obviously something that's completely broken down behind the scenes. It's not an absence of military intelligence. It's an absence of thinking it through at our end. And I'm afraid to hear the Prime Minister yesterday in the Commons trying to absolve his uh, his complicit um, responsibility for this complete collapse is wrong. You know, if we believe that we shouldn't have exited the way that we have done, the prime minister should have been shouting that from the rooftops a month and a half ago. Mm. He should have been saying the Americans are making a huge mistake. We are not with the Americans. We're going to stand out against this. We call on other allies to stand with the United Kingdom. We did nothing. As I mentioned, Sir General Nick Carter was completely satisfied with our leaving, our leaving yeah. Afghanistan we are we are front and center and in the crosshairs of blame for what is now going on in that country and it's worse than saigon much worse than saigon saigon was a relatively local matter it affected vietnam and the immediate surrounds what we're going to see now is a complete loss of western influence mm. all the way from israel through to india that whole region is going to be lost to the united states of america and to british Influence.
1: Yes, because we've seen as well um, with recent uh, developments in recent days, Ashraf Ghani uh, pitching up in the UAE uh, with apparently a plane full of cash, as much as 170 million pounds, possibly so much of it that they couldn't load it into a helicopter because there was too there wasn't enough room. Um, massive yeah. corruption, which must have been known about uh, at government level, surely. Oh, of course they knew about it, but you know, that's the least of their concerns, I suppose,
0: in a sense, because. You know, we—it was, as we can see now, it was exit at all costs. Mm. I don't know what happened. Why there was a sudden collapse of all political will and a desire to see through what they'd been trying to see through for twenty years, and why they had to just leave in this massive hurry. But that, I, I think, reflects a complete uh, collapse in a commitment to the region. And so, you know, a few billion dollars extra to you know, Ghani and God knows how many other, Mm. you know, illicit, you know, uh, sorry, um, words have lost me, actually. I know, it's it's, it's hard not to swear, isn't it? (laughs) Uh, You know, all that money going astray is actually a drop in the ocean compared to the disaster that they've created.
1: It really is extraordinary. And now, of course, we will reap, uh, unfortunately, the uh, the results of this foreign policy failure, because not only uh, will people die in Afghanistan and not only will women suffer and children will suffer, there's already punishment beatings being handed out. You know, this newfound kind of gentler kinder, um, kinder caliban for me is not really anything that we should be taking any account of whatsoever. Uh, but now we've got people uh, like David Davis saying, never mind taking 5,000 refugees, we should take 50,000. It's
0: not about taking refugees. It's never about taking refugees. You don't solve problems abroad by welcoming everyone who's had trouble into the United Kingdom. You Mm. can't do it. No. What we need is a political settlement for Afghanistan that is sensible for Afghanistan and for Pakistan. People aren't talking about Pakistan, but Pakistan is a much more geopolitically important country than Afghanistan. It has been variously relied on and admonished in the campaign that the West has fought against Afghanistan. And it is Pakistan that's gonna pick up the bulk of the cost of this complete collapse in Afghanistan. Pakistan already has over 3 million Afghan refugees in it, Mm. bringing with them the drug trade, militant Islam, their bad ways. And this is the message that the Taliban are going to put forward. The message is going to be that by the grace of God, we have defeated the Americans. Mm. God backs the Taliban. The right way forward, therefore, is for those people who are dispossessed in Muslim nations to back the Taliban. And it is a very, very powerful message. They will all be saying, Allahu Akbar, God is great. The Taliban are backed by God. They will garner support in a way that was not possible before we left with our tails between our legs. And I don't think the Commons even began to discuss that yesterday. The very strong message that will go out from the Taliban, recruiting through Pakistan, through the Middle East, dispossessed Muslims who want hope in life and will see the Taliban now as their way to get revenge on this American oppressor that has bombed bombed the region to smithereens for the last 20 years. Nothing could be worse for Western foreign policy than what we've done in the last month.
1: Do you think, Ben, that it's a case of the West becoming too soft over the years? Because, you know, there may have been bombing campaigns, but they were never really aimed at wiping out the Taliban. They were sort of aimed at scaring people out of caves and trying to figure out where people were. It wasn't as if there was a kind of a, a war going on against the Taliban specifically. And so, yesterday you're quite right, it was quite moving in part. Some of the speeches were very heartfelt, but I felt at the end of the day, as much as um, uh, it was quite a worthwhile exercise, they didn't really make any decisions. Boris Johnson looked generally a bit bewildered by the whole fact of a very full uh, House of Commons chamber for the first time since the pandemic started and you wonder what he does next because at some point presumably there will be calls to go back in and he'll have to decide whether he wants to do that
0: we we can't go back in the Taliban's grip now on Afghanistan is going to be stronger than it was in 2001 to go back in now would involve door-to-door fighting through the cities of Kabul, Herat etc it would be bloodshed on a scale that we would the 457 brave sold British soldiers that died would be belittled in number mm. by the number that would have to die in order to take Afghanistan now. There is no way we can go back into Afghanistan. Um, Afghanistan is lost to the Taliban. And with it, we will see Pakistan necessarily having to befriend the Taliban because it's at their doorstep. We will see this cry going out from the Taliban to Muslims in the region. And we will see a movement away from looking west towards the East and China, by the way, Mm. is gonna absolutely capitalize on this. China doesn't seek as we do to export our ideology, our democracy. The biggest mistake I think we made in Afghanistan was going in and upsetting their ecosystem. Mm. We should never put boots on the ground. We should never have tried to civilize them in our way, trying to change. It It became a battle between our ideology and their theology. And God is a massive motivator. You know, you have to understand that God for these people is a much bigger motive than going to school and the education of women and and transgender rights, which is what we fuss about all the time in the West and so on. And so our ideology was always going to lose. Theology was always going to win. And we have just trashed our reputations in the near and Middle East by, by this withdrawal. I can't tell you how damaging it is. It's mm. utterly, yeah. utterly disastrous. And the prime minister is complicit. He cannot say that it's, oh, what, 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 what could we have done? The Americans pulled out. In saying that, what he's effectively saying is that the United Kingdom is nothing more than a lapdog mm. to the US. That we bit off more than we could chew in Afghanistan. That we should never have been there in the first place because actually we didn't have the muscle to stay the course. And of course that may be right, but all he's doing is admitting a complete foreign policy disaster. Yeah which this government was responsible for. Sure. Um, and he's also you know,
1: given hes also given uh, any other nation that wishes to do the same thing pretty much carte blanche to go ahead and do it because nobody in the West will do anything about it. Because at the end of the day, you know, if you're fighting a force like the Taliban, who are willing to do almost anything to win, then you're never going to win by being fair, are you? No, you're not. I mean, we've given... We have
0: absolutely put up the white flag. And people will be using it against us now for years to come. And, you know, we we, we live in a new cycle where the humanitarian crisis, which is what's dominating the media waves at the moment, will wane and our interest in the humanitarian crisis will wane and we'll forget about it, probably faster than we all think in the next Mm. two or three weeks. But the geopolitical implications of what we've just triggered will go on for years. Pakistan will become more China centric. It will receive more money from China. It will befriend the Taliban. Their militant form of Islam will take much greater root. We will have much more terrorism to contend with in the West. We will have greater refugee crises coming through from the Middle East into Europe and therefore to the United Kingdom. And we will pay a very heavy price for our withdrawal.
1: It's a terrible uh, scenario that you paint, but I can't disagree with you, Ben. Thank you very much indeed. Ben Habib, uh, CEO of First Property Group, uh, co-founder of Unlocked, former Brexit party MEP. You can't really argue with anything that he said. There's no doubt that this is a disaster. There's no question uh, that we put up the white flag. There's no um, argument whatsoever that um, we should perhaps have been a little bit more robust. Uh, with Joe Biden with the American policy to pulling out before everybody had actually left. Because don't forget, there are still people there. Uh, The front pages of the papers today are still full of pictures of people who are trying to get out of Kabul, uh, but can't because the grip of the Taliban around Kabul airport is tightening and it's getting harder and harder to get inside um, the airport itself, to get on a plane, to fly out. And it's an absolute shambles, a shocker, dreadful. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, I'm delighted to say, uh, for the first time on this show, we're going to speak to John Tierney, a man uh, who has written many interesting articles over the course of his career uh, as a journalist and as an author. Uh, This latest one, of course, The Panic Pandemic really echoes an awful lot of what we've been saying over the course of time here at Talk Radio, because we've been obviously now stuck in this rut for um, more or less 18 months since March of last year. We were told it was just going to be a couple of weeks. Then we were told it was just going to be a couple of months. Then we were told it was just going to be for Christmas. Then it was going to be for Easter. Now uh, we still don't have a completely up and running economy. We still can't travel in the way that we used to be able to travel. And there are still many businesses which will never recover and have not recovered. Let's say a very good afternoon to John Tierney. John, Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Mike. Now, uh, I read your piece and immediately sort of felt this is what we've been saying for a very long time. I haven't seen many people in uh, on your side of the Atlantic saying these things. But just tell us a little bit about uh, the article you did write, uh, The Panic Pandemic, and why you think the rest of the world has kind of almost operated in exactly the same manner.
3: Um, it's been this strange panic of the elite. And instead of you know keeping calm and carrying on, trying to give people an accurate assessment of the risk, there's just been this panic among the institutions leading society. You know, it, we've seen it in journalists, we've seen it in scientists social media platforms. And there's just been this huge desire to exploit the crisis and to suppress anyone who, who wants to actually uh, uh, present scientific research accurately to actually give a decent idea of the risk. And it's been an incredibly selfish uh, endeavor on the part of this where even with a laptop class goes on working and it doesn't affect them that much but they're devastating the rest of society you know the i mean the figures are astonishing that you know one in in two people worldwide lost income on this or a business um there's been this horrible impact and yet the laptop classes doesn't want to Uh, let go of this panic it it, uh, it, it's indulging in in this panic that and and then and when someone tries to you know there are scientists a great Barrington scientist who have been speaking out and they just get censored for doing that they get doing that and there's just this great desire to keep this panic going yes
1: and the interesting thing for me and we as I say we talk about this an awful lot and the the question that we get asked quite a lot by some of our listeners and, and our viewers is why Did they do it? Why did they feel compelled to lock down the economy in such a way? Why did they feel as though almost anything was worth doing if they could suppress the disease, which, of course, they ended up not suppressing anyway?
3: Right. I mean, to me, there are two basic reasons for this panel. One thing is what I call the crisis crisis, which is that there is an industry now and it's always been there. Politicians have always liked exploiting crises. uh, one of our politicians, Ronald Emanuel, was famous for saying, "You never want to let a crisis go to waste." It's yeah. a way to seize power, seize publicity, and there's a whole industry of of experts and bureaucrats who who profit from a crisis. It increases the, their prestige, their funding. So, it, and so there's always been that sort of industry th- that wants to hype crises, and it's and, th- and they've done that in previous pandemics. The you know Anthony Fauci. Um, who's been directing the US effort during the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s, he was, he, he, the New York Times is running an article saying that AIDS was gonna spread among children and among and among heterosexuals just as quickly as among homosexuals. Completely wrong, but it didn't hurt his career, mm-hmm. got him mm-hmm. attention. And so there's always this incentive for doomsayers to, to make these worst case scenarios. The press loves to report them. And when they're wrong, there's just never a penalty to pay later. Yes,
1: because I was always struck whenever we would have briefings um, with uh, either the prime minister and his medical advisors, the chief medical officers and things like that, whenever the press were able to ask them questions, the questions almost inevitably were not about, are you sure you're doing the right thing? Or is there an alternative to this kind of thing that you're doing? But it was more like, are you sure you're doing enough? You know, should, because, of course, the media were part of that laptop class that you refer to, who all had perfectly well, uh, good, well-paying jobs, which weren't affected at all. Uh, in fact, some of them were enhanced
3: by this. Right. It, and the media, you know, react, but they want fear because fear sells, you know, fear gets you clicks. It gets you ratings. Um, and there's also just this. This great logical fallacy that when something bad happens, it's something must be done. This is something, therefore, it must be done. Mm. And so, you've got to do something. And so, locking down these mask mandates, you know, there still is no real good evidence that mask mandates make a difference. There's certainly no evidence that lockdowns have made a difference. You know, we've seen, you know, in places like, you know, Florida, uh, Sweden, Finland, Norway, they, you know, they have. Um, not done the mass mandates, they've kept schools open and they've done better than the average in Europe and the United States. And, and yet we just ignore that evidence and people who try to point it out that we've got to keep this panic going. And right now, there's still no evidence. I mean, the Delta variant is more infectious, but there is isn't evidence that it's more deadly. It's not, it's not killing children more than the other one did. And yet in the U.S., we're about to, you know, reopen schools here with masks for the kids. And um, I've been censored by Facebook because, you know, I've reported on, there's lots of evidence that, that masks are harming children, that, that, you know, that it, it hurts their learning Hurts their social development. You know, there's all these, uh, these pathogens that you, you know the, uh, uh, that accumulate on the mass and yet uh, the response was Facebook labels my article partly false for no. You know, basically mm-hmm. it, it goes against the narrative. Yes. And, and, and we've had so much misinformation now coming from our officials. We have, you know, Fauci and the CDC trying to tell people that the Delta variant is going to be worse. No evidence of that. But, you know, they don't get censored. But anyone who questions it does.
1: Yes. Well, I remember watching a press conference. This was a couple of weeks ago before Jacinda Ardern locked down the entire country again because of one case of COVID. She actually said as as an elected prime minister of a country, she said you should not believe any information unless it comes from the government only the government has the right information on covid and you're thinking what sort of world have we suddenly found ourselves living in because i've similarly like you been uh, been been given warnings on facebook i did an interview as i do quite regularly with peter hitchens um, christopher hitchens brother uh, who's been a very much of a lockdown skeptic if you like throughout all of this and yeah. you know they gave a little warning that said some of the information in this um, um, article may be misleading And I'm thinking, you know, between us, we've got probably, you know, upwards of, I don't know, 60 or 70 years worth of journalistic expertise. You know, and some guy in Sacramento uh, uh, in the the Silicon Valley is is flagging it up as dangerous.
3: Right. Uh, You know, these groups are, 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 I mean, they've been so wrong about so many things, and yet they go on just censoring it, that their job is to enforce the government. I mean, I I, I do respect, you know, Toby Young at Lockdown Skeptics in the UK. That Mm. is... Great force, I really, you know, and there seems to be more resistance in the UK than than in the US. I mm. mean, there are some of us doing this here, but, but it's it has shocked me how quickly Americans have just surrendered their freedoms. Uh, you, know, you know, certainly. Uh, And this idea of zero covid that that we should do whatever we can and give up any uh, uh, free speech, give up freedom of association just to please this sort of these panic models. Right. And Joe
1: Biden, who over the the, the Afghanistan
3: debacle is proving himself to
1: be not exactly the world's greatest president that America's ever had. I remember him calling the, the Texans and the Floridians Neanderthals because they didn't want to wear masks and they were quite happy to go about their business as free Americans.
3: Right. It's it's, no. And and, and the media is doing this again. You know, last summer, um, there were these predictions that Florida was was headed for disaster because, you know, from, from Fauci and people because it, um, it opened up and it didn't have the mask mandates. In fact, you know, Florida last year did better than 40 other states. When you adjust for the effect they have an older population, they did better than the rest of the country. And yet, you know, that gets ignored. And so, you know, we've been having a seasonal surge in our sunbelt here, which that's, you know, that's how viruses work, mm. you know, in these in these uh, warm weather places people go inside during the summer and viruses spread more but again we're saying oh my god this is proof that we all need to lock down again
1: yeah i mean on a more kind of broad um subject matter i suppose i mean do you think john that there has been generally an intolerance now built into government and, and into uh, the way that countries are governed, uh, whereby if you don't go along, because it's quite a frightening thing for me, if you don't go along with the status quo and what the politicians are telling you, you're
3: somehow a dangerous, mad, bad individual. Right. Um, well, I've written um, Ed City Journal about what I call the left's war on science, which hmm. is the- you know, there is this, you know, the the progressives for, you know, ever since the original ones last century, have had this dream that we're going to have a society run by expert social engineers, they know better than us. And of course, this has led to, you know, horrible things around the world. But it's come back now. And, And even before the pandemic, the left in the in the US and in the UK had mastered these techniques for canceling people for censoring for silencing anyone who questions leftist orthodoxy. And, and, and there's this Uh, this pretense that we're following the science. Well, no, they're not following the science. They're seizing on a leftist version of science, Mm. to justify policies that they want to do. And anyone who objects and says, well, actually, that's not what the, you know, there isn't believe in science. Science should be a constant question of debate and and questioning. And yet it's supposed to be no, we know what the science is and it justifies our policies. Mm. And this you know, and these, Uh, these tactics for silencing dissent and punishing, you know, anyone who questions it, they were in place before the pandemic, but the pandemic, as Jane Fonda said, was God's gift to the left. It was a great way to go after Donald Trump. It was a great way to consolidate power and do lots of these sort of policies in that, that, expanding the government the way progressives want mm-hmm. to do it.
1: And isn't it interesting as well that many of the things, perhaps, that you were saying and that we were saying last year have now turned out, actually, uh, to be being now said by what you might call the mainstream uh, of politics and the mainstream of the media, such as the leak uh, in the lab in Wuhan, uh, which was poo-pooed as some kind of conspiracy theory, uh, such as, for example, the fact that all of these Models that they put together in Sage in this country, and I'm sure in uh, in the White House over where you were, uh, which you know, predicting things which never came to pass. Um, the mask uh, studies, as, as you say, which which have, have have proved to be at least inconclusive, if, if if nothing more than that. And so much of what we were cr- criticised for saying uh, is now accepted as normal.
3: Right. Well, well, it's accepted in some circles, but either by people who actually look at the data. Yeah. and passionately and you know there are tens of thousands of scientists and doctors who've signed that great barrington declaration saying saying all along we should have focused protection on the elderly that's you know that's who this virus kills and yet by by these general lockdowns imposing you know widespread harms on everyone and and you're not protecting you know places like new york new york state where i am they were so panicked by these projections you know, from Neil Ferguson's group that, uh, and, and from others that the hospitals are all gonna be overwhelmed, that, oh my God, we've gotta empty the hospitals and put COVID patients in nursing homes, and we had tragic results. Whereas you know, in Florida, for instance, you know, they, they actually did pay attention to science as opposed to panic monitoring. They focused there on elderly people. And uh, you know the interesting thing in, in talking to scientists who have been censored and who have been following this, the great Barrington scientists, um, when they talked to Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor who was pilloried for his policies, they were amazed that he was a politician who had actually read just mm. about every paper that they mentioned to him. He actually did follow the science. Right. And, and Florida um, when,
1: and looking at uh, in your article, there's a, there's a graph on the age adjusted COVID mortality rate. And Florida is about half the rate uh, of deaths than New York. And you would think because it has such an elderly population that it would be worse.
3: Right. When you adjust for the age, Florida did better, you know, than every other large state in the, in the U.S. Much better. California, lockdown forever, mask mandates, everything. Florida did much better, not just at preventing COVID deaths, but also at preventing excess mortality. I mean, that's been the awful thing about these lockdowns is the people who have died from drug overdoses, the, uh, the, you know, these deaths of despair and we're, and, and we're going to be paying the price for that for years to come. People who mistreatments, people who, um, who, who end up succumbing to despair because they've been hurt so much financially by then.
1: Yes. And I mean, every day we still get read out by the big uh, TV networks here. This is the number of cases. This is the number of deaths. You know, they've never done this for any other illness. And quite frankly, you know, we, as I'm sure you do, have a far higher number of people dying in this country every single day, around about 15 to 1600 a day. Uh, Far more, like 15 times and sometimes 20 times the number of people who are dying from Covid. But we don't list that because it's not important enough.
3: Right I mean it's it's sort of pure and uh, when you put people in charge you know as supposed experts when you put them in charge of policy they have such a limited vision I mean you know what with, what with Fauci and and what and what Sages, is Their mission is, uh, we want to keep the case count down because that looks better for us. Mm. That's what we have to do every day. And they're so obsessed with that that they ignore the other deaths that are going on. They ignore all the collateral damage. And this is where political leaders cannot say, oh, I'm gonna follow the scientists and do whatever they say. The scientists like Fauci does not have the perspective to take you know to do and, and they don't even pretend to do a, a cost benefit analysis no one says well by doing these things will, will um the benefits will offset the harms. Mm. It's simply no. our only goal in society is keeping covid cases down yes exactly
1: and all that we've seen really is a complete degradation of the nhs the health service in this country where people can't still uh, get an appointment to see a general practitioner a gp a local doctor because um they think you might be sick and it's like well hang on a minute You're a doctor. You're supposed to see sick people, but they don't want to see. You You can't get into the surgery. Uh, You can't get an operation. There's a waiting list of five and a half million, which the health secretary has said could grow to 10 million. Um, What about the, um, uh, the, the thoughts that some people have, John, that the only way out of this is for the public to kind of lead the way rather than to be led? by politicians you know there are some people in this country who believe that but there are some who also think that we'll never get the old london back the old busy you know full of office workers type city scenario any longer
3: well i think cities do have a way of coming back you know i mean new york was predicted it was going to be over after you know after the attacks of september 11th yeah. and new york came back but i i do um I do think that probably the best hope at this point is um, in punishing politicians who do this. I mean, you know, in California, there's, you know, no one expected the governor to be recalled, and we don't know what's going to happen. But if he is actually recalled from office, it'll be in large part because of anger at what the lockdowns have done to California. And I think if politicians start getting punished for that, and we start rewarding politicians like Ron DeSantis in Florida, who actually h- have taken a rational approach to this, maybe that will send a message. Um, but you know, the great fear is that the um, lockdown fanatics, you know, like Fauci and, and, the, and these others, they still, they're not admitting their mistakes. They're censoring anyone who dares to point out that, they, that they've made a mistake. And they see this as a precedent. I mean, right now, you know, we already have some of our public health leaders saying, well, the masks have got to stay beyond COVID. Now we've got to have masks during flu season. Children are going to be wearing masks forever on this. And um, I do very much worry that we're setting a terrible precedent. And I hope that voters do that the public does react to this and punish politicians who have inflicted so much damage on it. Well,
1: I would say that they should remember that we elect them and we pay them and we supply them with money and power in order to do what we wish for them to do on our
3: behalf, not the other way around. Exactly. And, and you know, politicians are supposed to, you know, they're supposed to be leaders who are taking every, who are looking at the big picture. You know, yes, maybe, you know, mask. Um, that mass harm children for very little benefit. You know, you know, for no demonstrable benefit and they should be looking at that instead of just what can i do to keep the you know to make it look as if i'm doing something against this epidemic mm, absolutely john great to talk to you thank you very much indeed john tierney there author
1: of the panic pandemic published in the city journal in the new york uh, area and also all over the uh, internet as well i'll put out a, a, a link to it so you can read the piece it's very good it's all about what we talk about here every single day when it comes to covid and the restrictions and why the lockdowns for us in many cases, uh, were not necessary at all. Talk Radio.
4: Across the UK. Online. On DAB.
1: And on your smart
4: speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio.